Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. Well, this is Pentecost Sunday, when we are reminded that we are a getting up people, that uh, the cross did not have the final say. There is a full gospel. This is the day when we celebrate Uh, the life of the church, because this is the day that the Christian church was effectively born. Some 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord, the book of Acts says the day of Pentecost fully came, and the Spirit fell, and the Christian church was born. To that end, um, I, I want to segue out of what we did last week. Last week, I asked you a question, and the question that I asked you was this. If you could have a face-to-face meeting with Jesus of Nazareth, I'm not talking about on the other side. I'm not talking about the end of time. I'm not talking about what Bill's doing right now. I'm talking about right now. And I don't mean this glib or cliche because there actually is a pretty powerful theological point to all of this and a very practical point for our lives. This is for the 16-year-olds listening to me and the 80-year-olds listening to me. If you could have a face-to-face meeting with Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, the one that we call Christ, and you could ask him, John, one question. You got one question, like, you know, the genie in the bottle, you got, you got three wishes, you got one question with Jesus. He walked in here, blue robe, sandaled feet, bronze-skinned Terry, and he sat down and said, give it to me. If you could ask visible God in flesh, that's the way we characterize him. That's who we believe he is. The one crucified and the one resurrected, if you could ask him a question, what would your one question be? Now, with that said, I want to remind you, interestingly, that many people did get that chance. 2,000 years ago, God did live a human life in the person that we know as Jesus And a lot of people ask him a lot of questions. Now, we don't have all the questions that were asked of Jesus, but we have quite a few. We don't have all the things that were said about Jesus. We don't have all the things that Jesus did. We don't have all the books that were written about Jesus. But the early church wrestled through a, a, a real assortment of books, and they finally concluded that the four gospels we have were seminal, that they were indeed the word of God to us, and they did indeed If not capture, they pointed sufficiently in a saving way to the life that we know as Jesus. And in those four Gospels, there are lots of questions from lots of people. Now, I want to say this about Jesus. He asked lots of questions. If I understand correctly, he asked uh, somewhere close to 100 unique questions to people. Now, they repeat in the Gospels, but in terms of stories, there were somewhere between 80 to 100 times that Jesus just looked at people and Flat out ask him a question. Seldom did we have the answer or even a good answer, but Jesus knew in his pedagogy and his teaching style that questions were important. Now, to that end, the gospel writers understood that, and they record, and this is give or, my, give or take three or four, but as I read it, there were about 80 times that Jesus was asked direct questions by people. Now, I've heard all my life people say that Jesus was asked questions and he never answered them. But I haven't found that to be true in my reading of the biblical text. 
As I go through the 80 unique questions asked of Jesus, I actually find that he was silent, that he chose to not respond at all, only about a half dozen times, maybe five. So again, give or take a couple, Jesus was asked. The early church distilled down and said, here are 80 questions that people asked Jesus, and only five times did he seal his lips and say, Fifth Amendment, I'm not talking. One of those times was when demons asked him a question. Well, that one makes sense. You don't even want to engage them. But there were times demons asked questions, and he did respond. But on one occasion, demons asked him a question, William, and he said, I'm not biting. One time, the apostle Peter asked a question, and you guys know, if you know anything about the New Testament, read through the story, Peter was eventually called a rock, but a lot of the time he was a sandbag. And he, he could say some pretty dumb things. He, my granddad used to say he kept his socks wet because his feet were in his mouth all the time. And that, that was Simon Peter. And on one particular occasion, Simon asked him a question, and Jesus just looked at him, and it probably, I don't know what it looked like, but it may have looked something like this. <sighs> and the story is Mikey just didn't respond. The other three or four times, it was religious leaders like Pharisees who came to Jesus not in earnest, but they were trying to trap him. Sometimes he would bite on that and engage them, but on three or four occasions, he just said, he just looked at them and said, no can do. I'm not even going to respond. Of the 75 times, what's that? 75 out of 80, 15, 16, that's you know, 92, 93% of the time he responded. He gave answers. Let me just say it this way. If his responses to them were any indication of how he might respond to you and your question, I'm not sure how satisfying all of us would deem his responses. The reason a lot of people say that Jesus didn't respond to questions by answering them, which isn't true because he did respond I think what they're trying to point out is his answers weren't always as clear as the askers would have liked them to be. At the very least, most of the time when Jesus answered a question, it was an indirect answering of the question. Sometimes he would respond with another question, but often he would respond with an answer that literally the people would walk away baffled saying, what in the world did that have to do with what I just asked? The reality is Jesus wasn't being obtuse. He wasn't being a smart aleck, and he wasn't being a politician. But if you go back and you read the answers, I think maybe even you would look at them and say, I'm not making the connection. If the question would have been a cold, the answer wouldn't have caught it. But the reality is, with the help of hindsight and 2,000 years of church history, when we look at some of those moments when the people didn't get it, we realize that Jesus wasn't being indirect at all. He was simply answering them in a way that they had no capacity at that moment to comprehend. And maybe the reason they didn't, and sometimes we don't like his answers, is because we ask leading questions with the answers we want already in our mind. We asked one another and Jesus things that we think we already know. We ask things and we have presuppositions, filters, lenses 
and we know what we want him to say, and the fact of the matter is he doesn't always bite and answer us the way we want him to. Frankly, an entire series could be done regarding all of those questions and the answers Jesus gave and the answers he didn't give, but I want to just, I want to just want note one particular answer that Jesus gave that I think the answer itself might not be the most powerful in content. Well, I don't know exactly how to say that. The answer he gives might slide past you, but the fact that he gave this answer may frankly be one of the three or four most powerful things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And I don't want you to miss it. It's gonna shock some of you. Some of you are about to have to turn your brain on and grind a little bit. But I want us to note this answer that Jesus gave near the end of his life to a question that was asked him. Actually, if we were looking at the week of his death, if the Last Supper was Thursday, Friday, the crucifixion the same, this may have been on Monday night or Tuesday night. Matthew 24 records the story of how the disciples and Jesus had gone to the temple. So I want you to look at it. We'll look at the first three verses and then we'll skip down to the last part of the chapter. After Jesus left the temple, his disciples came over and said, and I want you to notice this. This is the thing, this is one of those things about Jesus that bothers some people that follow him. The disciples came over and said, look at all these buildings. So the disciples say to, about the temple, look at all these buildings. I don't know if this was a statement about uh, the insipidness of institutionalized religion. I don't know what their point was. But incredulous is the tone with which they said, look at all these buildings. I mean, this is kind of the season where Jesus had braided the whip and whipped the guys out of the temple, John said. And the disciples, I guess, trying to conjoin themselves to that, said, look, look at all this. Just look. You know how we do. Guys like me with a little church, I go over to a big church and I say, can you believe all this? And inside I'm thinking, man, I wish I had all of this. <laughs> look at these buildings. Jesus replied, do you see these buildings? Now we can stop right there. Look at these buildings, they say. And Jesus said, do you see them? Isn't that phenomenal? They were trying to really climb up on some high horse of self-righteousness and insight. And Jesus said, you're telling me to look at these buildings? You're not even seeing them. Crawl back down off your high horse. Do you see them? Do you even know what you're asking me? Uh, he does that over and over and over. That's not even the message. It's just something I noticed there. Do you see them? They will certainly be torn down. And he's right. Less than four decades later, Rome would come in and trying to keep Pax Romana. They thought there were just too many zealots over in Palestine. Rome would come in and say, we tried to let you keep your religion. Herod even refurbished this temple for you, but you keep pushing the envelope and... That temple that the disciples are pointing to was torn down. And it was gone. Jesus said, you see these buildings? They will certainly be torn down. Not one stone will be left in place. Later, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him in private. So now, outside of the public forum, they come to him, and this is still grinding on them. 
How does Israel, who's had a temple for the better part of a thousand years, first Solomon's temple, and then they lost that to the Babylonians, and then the Persians allowed them, they believed at God's behest, to rebuild the temple called Zerubbabel's temple in 520, and, and then that was refurbished by Herod in the decades before Jesus, and that's the temple Jesus went and worshiped in. That's the temple they're talking about and within four decades of Jesus' life, Rome comes in and decimates the place. And the temple is torn down. And that's a lot for Jewish men to think about. What happens when the entire institution we know is our religion, at least the centerpiece of it, is ripped away from us? Later, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him in private and they said, when will this happen? I just told you four decades, it's the beauty of hindsight. They didn't know if it were four months, four years, four decades, 400 years. They said, when will these things happen? What will be the sign? I want you to notice this. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? They did what we do. It's called, it's called myopia, being myopic, nearsighted. You know, you know generally our nearsightedness well, I used to say this about my kids. They wake up every morning with the sound of rushing wind in their ears. It's the planets revolving around them. <laughs> it's called being myopic and nearsighted or uh, chronocentric, chronos time. We, we look at our time as the only time. We look at our nation as the only nation. When we come to the end of what is our life, we think the whole universe is coming to the end, right? And, and notice what they did here. They, they asked Jesus, all Jesus said was, this temple's going to be torn down. They said, when's this going to happen? Supposing that it was the sign of his coming and the end of the world, right? When my world ends, everybody's world ends. We've all felt that, haven't we? I stand around yesterday, and Lisa was sitting here, and I watched everybody leave, and I came back in, Heath, and she was sitting here, and within feet of her, we had already moved on, and we were laughing. You ever felt that awkwardness at funerals? You're there in the parlor, and you're not as close to the people, Jim, as some are, and you're seeing somebody you hadn't seen, and you laugh too loud, and you look over, and there's the child. Huh, it's a, we've all been there. It's awkward. And though we're discreet enough not to say it, generally, when I'm the one there and the people are laughing around me, Rob, I want to scream out, would the whole world please stop? Please quit moving on. Please. But it doesn't, does it? And, and that's this moment. They said, when's our temple going to be torn down? Supposing that means the end of the world, right? My world ends, the whole world ends. No. Our nation is not God's capital. My life is not the center of the universe, and the end of my domain is not the end of everybody's. But that's what they thought. It's amazing to me that we've taken Matthew 24 and this construct and built an entire eschatology about the end time when they were misguided in their question in the first place. They supposed something that wasn't true. But, but anyway, they ask him, when's this going to happen? What's the sign of your coming and the end of the world. And Jesus goes into a long discourse. It's a pretty complicated answer, and theologians have been arguing about it, and I'm sure not going to settle it. 
But I want you to notice at the end, everybody, I want you to notice this. At the end of his response, go to verse 36. Or 32, I'm sorry. Jesus comes down the home stretch. Listen to me. And he says, learn a lesson from a fig tree. When its branches sprout and start putting out leaves, you know summer is near. So when you see all these things happening, you will know that the time has almost come. And I can promise you, he goes ahead and accommodates himself and speaks to their situation. It's the, it's the destruction of the temple. I can promise you that some of the people of this generation will still be alive when all this happens. These folk didn't live 2,000 years. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. The sky and the earth won't last forever in your world or the world. The universe will implode. The sun that we know, the star that we know as sun will burn out. The sky and the earth won't last forever, but my words will. And the final answer, Stephen, register that he gives them is no one knows the day or hour. The angels in heaven don't know. And please, I'm not trying to be first gradish, but I want you to say it. Fill in the blank. And the who is named. And Jesus himself doesn't know. Only the Father knows. To one of the 80 questions Jesus was asked, Jesus said in response to the question, what did he say? I don't... Wait a minute. Let's sit there for a minute. Jesus said... Say it with me. Jesus said... Does that feel funny to anybody besides me? Jesus said... Say it again. Why are we so afraid to say, when Jesus said, I don't know. There was a moment when Jesus was asked a question, and he didn't say, I take the fifth, you're not worthy of an answer. He wasn't elusive. He wasn't indirect. He looked at them and said, Lucy, he said, I don't know. God knows. I don't know. More explicitly, he said, the Father knows. I don't know. More explicitly, he said, the Son doesn't know. I'm going to tell you something funny about the church. In the first few centuries, when we were wrestling through this issue of a New Testament canon, we now know in those first few centuries that in parts of the church, most of the parts of the church by the second century had many manuscripts of Pauline writings, gospel writings, and they shared them with one another. And in the absence of a printing press, they copied them and they made copies of the copies of the copies and they translated them and transliterated them and they held those copies dear. I wanna tell you something really interesting. We have about 6,500 manuscripts 
of either the part or an entire New Testament, 6,500 ancient manuscripts, some of them dating all the way back to little bitty pieces of torn paper that we think may have come from the time when even some of the apostles were still alive, late first century. We have hundreds of manuscripts from what we would feel would be the second and the third century, and then we have thousands of manuscripts from the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth century. Textual scholars who put together our translations of the Bible, none of them have the Bible that Jesus took to church with him. None of them have a 26-book leather-bound compendium of the 26 or 27 original letters of the apostles. Did you know we don't have any of the original writings? But scholars sit with these 6,500 manuscripts, and I want to say something that you need to know. Most of you already know it. Of those 6,500 manuscripts from varied parts of the Christian church, from Syria to the British Isles to mid-Africa to India, Rome, Spain, Asia Minor, these manuscripts contain within them several hundred thousand variants, differences. Good news for those that that makes nervous, most of them are incidental. Most of them are, a scribe was getting sleepy, hadn't drunk enough coffee, the light was getting low, and he would skip a line. Or two lines ended with the same word. There's a big fancy name for that. Two lines ended with the same word, and he would miss a line because his eyes would fall to the word on the second line, and an entire line would be omitted. Those are not the problematic variations. I'll tell you what the problematic variations are. The ones that concern doctrine. And textual scholarship is that part of the Christian church that gives them to the process of sniffing out in our manuscripts which ones are spurious variations, and they do a really good job with this. They notice that there are consistent variations that follow doctrinal differences that come from a particular part of the church that had a dog in that hunt and were literally, this is scary, there were literally, at the behest of the leadership, the scribes who were doing the translating, some of them even theologians, they were changing the text to make it say what their doctrine needed it to say. And we all say, oh, that's awful. And yet we read the Bible that way sometime, don't we? Anybody here skip lines here and there that you don't like? Anybody here look at something that's really tough and say, oh, it couldn't mean that. It's got to mean this. That's rewriting just like they were. Well, the textual scholars work really hard to clean that up and give us what they believe is as close to the original handwriting of the apostles as we can get. And I think they've done a good job with that. I want to tell you something. In some of the manuscripts from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, when we were really arguing about who Jesus was, many manuscripts omit the line not the son. No man knows, nobody knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not the son, only my father. Many manuscripts, a fraction, but a good number, take out the son. As a matter of fact, if you got a King James Bible, you would have read that verse following along. You'd have said, oh, something's missing because it says not the angels, only the father. Oh, wait a minute. Why doesn't your King James say not the son? 
because the King James Version was from a set of manuscripts, most of them that came after 1000 CE or AD, late manuscripts, and the strain of manuscripts that the King James was translated from, that little strain of the 6500 would have been less than probably a few dozen, did not include the sun. But all the other translations you have put the sun in there because we know, as best we can tell, that was what Jesus said. But the King James, which that's strange because we all know King James was the book that Jesus used. And it's strange that <laughs> the Bible he used did not get all the stuff he said, right? Are you following me? It's not strange why those manuscripts omit nor the sun. It's not strange why they take that out. Because... <laughs> Thinking about Jesus saying, I mean, let, let put yourself in, the, in, in their shoes. I gave you, I set you up a little bit, but I gave you this kind of cliched, sweet picture of you get to sit down and you get, Carol, you get to ask Jesus in flesh a question. Did anybody here assume that Jesus might have the ability to say, I don't know. When Andrea's sitting there, ask, is our Yorkie going to be in heaven with us? I think he felt like Jesus would be able to say yes or no. But this story, Mike, says that there was a moment when Jesus looked and said, you got me. I don't know. Is that odd to anybody other than me? You know what you can do with that? You can kind of clean it up and say, tongue in cheek, he didn't mean that. He said, I don't know, and then winked at the angels. Well, then you got a problem with Jesus being a fibber, and that doesn't really help out a whole lot theologically, does it? <laughs> Jesus said, I don't know. And, and, and some were so uncomfortable with that that as scribes, they literally, when they saw that Jesus said, I don't know, you know what they did? They turned the pencil over, number two, and they... And that's exactly what you would be doing if you don't pay attention to what this means, that Jesus has the capacity to say, I don't know. The church wrestled with those manuscripts and eventually they looked at one another and they turned that pencil back over and they said, he said, I don't know. Deal with it. And they dealt with it. Ultimately, the church decided that Jesus lack of omniscience. Y'all remember that big word? God's omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. Ultimately, the church decided that Jesus' lack of omniscience. Jesus admittedly saying, I don't have all-knowing status. Ultimately, the church said, that doesn't undermine his divinity. Now, hear me. The first body of Christ, God in flesh, saying, I don't know. The church said, that's uncomfortable. I mean, at, at the same time, some people were writing spurious gospels that even had a little boy Jesus. They were filling in the story of his life, and little boy Jesus, when he would get mad at people, he was like killing their dogs and making houses fall on them because we just always wanted to imagine, you know, that 
Jesus was all-powerful God, and all-powerful God meant that he had fire coming out of his fingertips, and when he was born, they cut the umbilical cord, and he cried, and everybody said he's so cute. He looked out from behind those infant eyes at the angels and gave them a wink-wink. But that's not the story. The church finally said, Jesus not knowing does not undermine his divinity. Jesus not knowing does not undermine the fact that he was God living a truly human experience any more than his death did. If we can deal with God experiencing human death, then we can deal with God saying, in Jesus, I don't know. The point finally became, the thing they finally understood was, Jesus, God in Jesus did not sanitize or mitigate the incarnation process. God didn't look down and put on rubber gloves and coat himself with chain mail and say, I'm going in. He disrobed the rights and privileges of divinity and he lived. God lived a fully human life. In Jesus, this is what we had to wrap our mind around and we had to finally put down our pencils and say we're gonna quit erasing stuff and deal with this. It must say something. Even though we don't like it, even though we don't like a God crying, even though we don't like a God dying, even though we don't like a God saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though we don't like it, even though we don't like when he looks at us and says, I don't know, there must be something in this for us or he wouldn't have done it. And the point was that in Jesus, God lived a fully human life. God was born and God grew. Listen to me, young people. God grew. God learned in Jesus God lived and laughed and suffered and questioned in Jesus. God hung on a cross and died. Luke 2.52 said, and Jesus, he was 12 years old, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. Listen to me. It's a whole lot easier to worship him than to follow him, but he came down here to be followed, and he didn't come down here glowing and floating. He came down here in human form. Luke 2, 51 through 52, the same thing from the message. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Look at it in the message. So he went back to Nazareth with them, and God, that's who he was, right? That's what we concluded, right? Jesus lived obediently with his parents, his mother held these things dearly, deeply within herself. I guess you were, you would if you were the mother of Jesus. By the sixth century, one of our biggest splits ever, finally culminated in the 11th century, was over whether we could call Mary the mother of God. That's why we split. The church split right down the middle, east and west, on that issue. And you say, what? Yeah, can we call her the mother of God? Whoever she was, Deep down inside, she had to think about this. She had to wrestle with the wisdom and erudition that came from him, and she had to wrestle from the fact that he did not tell her where he was going and scared her to death for a day. And he didn't look at her and say, woman, do you know who you're talking to? 
The Bible said God and Jesus put his head down and said, sorry, mama, and he went home and he lived obediently with her. Bother anybody? Is actually the beauty of the story. And Jesus matured. Haven't we been taught that Jesus was God? And Jesus matured growing up in both body, that's one thing, but Jesus was growing up in, say it, spirit, blessed by both God and people. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses seven through nine. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission, although he was a son, we eventually said that is son of God, that is second person in a trinity that is fully God and fully man. That's what we wrestled through while we were erasing things and putting them back in. Although he was a son, in spite of the fact that he was divine, although he was God, he learned. What does it mean to learn something today? It means yesterday I didn't know it. Jesus learned not just mathematics and science and the memorization of history, but moral, spiritual development, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made, who? Jesus. And having been made perfect, fully mature, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The message says, having arrived at the full stature of his maturity. Mark's gospel was the first and the most pithy. And Mark's gospel says in chapter 15, verse 34, when he hung on the cross, the last thing Mark said that he said was my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You talk about a wrestling match. It was such a wrestling match that Luke, within 15 years, used Mark's gospel. And in using Mark's gospel, Luke admits the cry of Jesus. But Luke, Luke says that he cried out, Matthew says that he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he shouted and gave up his spirit. He screamed, ah, and he gave up his spirit. Luke, who writes later, said he screamed, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. We could not leave him alone. We could not allow him to just say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps he couldn't allow himself to say only that. And Luke finally later gives us, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And while that sanitizes and helps us, we must not rush over the fact that if we have concluded Christ was God, in his flesh, God living a human life, said, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the ultimate Emmanuel. 
It is one thing, Paul, for God to say, I'm with you in the soft form of a baby. It is another thing for him to say, I'm with you when he walks on the water, denying the surface tension and the laws of physics. It is one thing for him to say, I am with you when he's burying others and raising the dead. But the ultimate voice of Emmanuel, the ultimate statement, I am with you, is when God goes to the very end of the world himself because the end of the world is not death. The end of the world is the absence of God. And the worst thing that a human being can experience in this world is a sense that God has abandoned them. It is that young woman looking at me a few months ago in the hospital saying, I've not only lost my husband, but I've lost God. And she lifted her hands and said, where is he? And I wanted to hold her and say, there, there, you've lost enough. Don't lose God too. The ultimate agony of human life, William, is the sense that God is not with me. Is there anything worse than when a person makes their bed in hell and says, God has rejected me? The ultimate union of God with man, seen in the man, God, Christ Jesus, was when God went to the end of a human experience and the angels must have been arrested. The angels must have lived in shock for a moment as they heard the divine one scream, my God, why have you forsaken me? For God to live a fully human experience, he had to experience the sense of being abandoned by God in spite of the fact that he was God. Paul tried to describe this beautiful act of incarnation to the church at Corinth. Look at 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, 1 verse, verse 9. Paul, in trying to get you to understand what's happening here in this one that we struggle with, we want to erase those things off of the pages. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. What I'm telling you is... <clears throat> that if you could ask Jesus one question, the riches you want from him is clarity and answer. But in Jesus, God showed us something. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he has to look at you and say, I don't know. I forfeited all knowledge why did you forfeit all knowledge? You gave up our powerhouse in the sky. No, he said, I did it for your sake. Though he was rich in knowledge and power, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. In the experience of Jesus saying, I don't know, you are experiencing the poverty of God, the relinquishment of power, the relinquishment of all knowledge. And we look at God in Jesus and we say, how could not knowing be better than knowing? And in some grand mystery, God understanding the fullness of soul making, God says, trust me now, this poverty will make you rich. And he walks up with the Pharisees attending him with all of the answers and all of the acuity and all of the certainty. And he stands on a mountain one day, Dirk, and he said, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit. Blessed are you if you don't feel like you have to have all of the answers. 
and he walks down off of that mountain, blessed are you if you're humble and meek, you'll inherit the earth. And as the Pharisees watched, the first person he met at the base of that mountain was a leper with ears and nose and fingers falling off. And Jesus knew what they knew. He knew that they had memorized the scripture that you could not touch a man like this. And he preached the Sermon on the Mount first with words, and then he preached the Sermon on the Mount with the words of his hands. As he looked at them, and they drew their breath, and his hand went down the white, withered face of that man's jaw, and he touched a leper. For our sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. The first body of Christ was trying to teach the second body of Christ called the church that our spiritual development and our spiritual strength is not measured by always having an answer. And there is great strength in a body of Christ. There is great strength in a body of Christ who can humbly sit beside God in flesh and look at him as he whispers, it's okay, preacher. And in those hospital rooms, as people ask me why, just a couple of months ago, as they held their baby at one o'clock in the morning and screamed at me, and if the dad could have gotten to me, he would have hit me because it was the closest he could get to hitting God. He told me so. And I got to fix it at one o'clock in the morning for a family that's going to have to figure out how to let go of a baby. And the first body of Christ whispers to me, it's all right, son, if you say, I don't know. It's all right to say only the Father knows. We have learned much because Jesus did not always say, I don't know. We have learned much in the first 2,000 years of church history, repeating, arguing about, erasing, rewriting, reinterpreting, preserving, sustaining. We have spent the first 2,000 years working hard at protecting those things that Jesus gave us in his answers but one little piece that we need to remember in this process of orthodoxy, division, and union, one piece we need to remember is that there are times when the holiest thing that even God can say, Thelma, is I don't know. And it is for your sake, Jesus said, that I have become poor because I'm going to teach you with all of your differences and disagreements I'm going to teach you how to live together as the body of Christ. And central to being an effective body of Christ is having the capacity with Jesus to say, say it with me, I don't know. And perhaps more spiritual energy is required to turn our hands over humbly and yield always having answers than to open our book and defeat the Methodist or the Baptist or the Catholics one more time with what I know. 
what I know. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to be a church. We're going to talk about what we know, and we are going to do our best to find the grace to talk about those things we don't know, some of them that we think we know. And that's hard, isn't it? Helping us, and I close with this, helping us on July 6th is an incredible woman by the name of Phyllis Tickle. Phyllis Tickle is 80 years old. She just turned in March, and she is a, an incredible woman. She is one of the foremost experts, pundits on religious life in North America, and she is a vibrant, vibrant Christian. She's brilliant academically. She was an academic until finally she left that and became the first religion editor of Publishers Weekly. Brilliant, brilliant lady. But Phyllis is also my favorite church historian, Phyllis casts and curates a walk through church history like nobody that I have ever met, and I've read a lot of them. But Phyllis, this incredible lady, is coming July 6th, so we've got three more weeks before she gets here, and she's going to talk to us about the age of the Spirit, which is the age that we live in now, the age when Jesus said to his disciples, I know you have me, and I know you think I'm the answer man, but you're gonna have to let go of me. And if you let go of me and allow me to come back in spirit and create another body, a large body of believers who are the new body of Christ, in John 14, 12, Jesus said, I told you I gotta go away so you can live in the spirit, so you can be the body of Christ. And you grieved and were sorrowful, but you don't know that this is actually to your advantage, that I'm not in blue robe, sandaled feet, that I am not bronze-skinned among you. It is to your advantage, for if I go away, the Spirit's going to come back, and the body of Christ is going to be a large group of people, Catholic and Protestant, Baptist and Methodist, all around this world, all ages. And we said, but we don't want that. We want one central authority in that blue robe giving us the answers. And Jesus said, did you not hear me say, I don't know some things? I'm going to leave you with a body of Christ filled with God's Spirit, and it's going to be better than when God walked the seashores of Galilee in one body. That's called the age of the Spirit. I've never done this in 11 years, but I'm going to give you some homework. Phyllis has written a book recently called The Age of the Spirit that speaks to this issue of church history and the presence of Christ in our community in the Spirit and how we are to live together more expressly than any book I've ever read, The Age of the Spirit. She wrote a book a few years ago called The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why. Christianity's always been changing. That's the process. And he was in a physical body. He was growing in wisdom and stature. Even God in flesh was learning obedience. The body of Christ now is growing in wisdom and stature. These books speak to that so well. I've got a bunch of boxes of these out in the foyer. And it'd be nice if you threw in $15 or $20 because it's not free and you're the church that's got to pay for it anyway. But if you don't have that today, pick up these books. They're a little bitty. They're skinny. You can have them for free or you can pay money, but don't take one if you're not going to read it. You don't have to read it and do the whole thing and give a report in the next four weeks, but these books are profound. And Phyllis talks so fast and so full. We have her for one week to really enjoy her. You need to do some homework. I'm going to do my best theologically to take you through this process of who the church is and build this case that I'm building. 
It's a wonderful case. And it's a beautiful thing that we've been called to. And Jesus looked out at all of us and he looked at himself in a mirror and he thought about the effectiveness and looking at one man in the mirror and looking at all of us, he said, you'll do better. Greater works than these shall you do because I go unto the Father. But the only way we'll do better is if we learn from his example. And today, I wanted to point out that sometime his example is to humbly say, say it with me, I don't know. This, brothers and sisters, is the vocation of the body called the body of Christ. Grab a book, take off reading. I'll pick up where I left off today. It'll be good. Don't miss next week. We're going to get, it'll even get more interesting. I hope you learned something today. God bless you. Lord, thank you for our time together. And as we read and study, open our hearts and minds, young and old, that we might do the work that you've called us to do. Thank you, God that you tried to even teach us how to be humble and say we don't know. Teach us your ways, sweet Christ, that we might be the body of Christ in this earth. We pray all of this in God's name, and we believe that name is Jesus. We follow you now, Lord, into our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, and God's people said...